If you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and take those out and turn with me to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians, the first chapter. Say a word of welcome to all of you. It's um, good to see you, especially those of you that are seeing me, but I don't see you. And I just want to also uh, just say welcome to you. Um, if you are joining us on the live stream, and I know we have uh, someone serving as host and they're saying good morning to you there, but would you just maybe say uh, a good morning to, to one another um, there as we, we realize that a great many of you are joining us uh, and understandably so from the live stream. And hopefully you've got your, your Bibles. Hopefully your fingers aren't too sticky from the pancake syrup that may be on them or whatever it may be. Um, and we're in Galatians, the first chapter. It is hard to believe that we will preach um, the storyline in the storyline series that we started in January. We will preach today's sermon and one final sermon next week in the book of Revelation, and then that's it. It's over. We did it. I can't believe it. 2020 didn't beat us. Um, we accomplished this thing um, of finishing up the storyline, and so what a, what a joy it has been to to labor together in that. We'll do a short Advent series and then uh, come back in 2021 and be Lord willing in uh, 1 Timothy. So Galatians chapter one, uh, we'll look at the first uh, 10 verses um, in preaching. This is, this is my jam. I love to preach the gospel. And so this is what we're talking about. Paul writes, and Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let us pray. Jesus, that is exactly what I want to be in this time and in this moment. I want to be your servant. I want to be a messenger of the good news, of the gospel that sets your people free. So Lord Jesus, may there just be a great amount of freedom. As the freedom is proclaimed, may there be freedom that is felt and may we leave here, may we, may we check off of this live stream having known having loved the, the Savior who has gave, given his all for us to redeem us and to ransom us, to save us and call us his own, to adopt us into his family. And may we forever be transformed by that. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Um, those of you that are here in person, you may be seated. 
here's where we are um, this week is that simple, just one simple kind of truth. It is this, that in, in every age, in every age, the gospel must be clearly proclaimed and courageously contended. And that's what's happening here in the book of Galatians, but it's not anything that's any different than is happening in most of the other letters that Paul is writing, that that's kind of Paul's job that he has. Paul is a, he's a, he's a missionary, he's a church planter, but most of all, the Lord is using Paul in order that Paul might, or in order that through Paul, he might uh, clarify the gospel what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. And that's what Paul is doing. He's proclaiming the gospel to the irreligious. He's proclaiming the gospel to the religiously lost. He's trying to save or he is saving the, the, uh, the gospel from the very clutches of heretics. Um, and he's wrestling it from religious legalists and from rebels. And Paul will accomplish this as we look in the book of Acts and also as well as in his epistles, Paul will accomplish this through three ways. The first thing Paul will do it is in person. Paul was an itinerant pastor preacher. He's moving around uh, ever so often. Sometimes he'll only stay in one area for a matter of weeks or months. Other times he will stay there like in Ephesus for years, but Paul is always traveling. And you'll see, even as you read in the epistles, Paul will say things like, I hope to see you in person. I hope to bring this news to you. I hope to correct you or rebuke you or encourage you in person when I come. And so Paul is constantly moving. He'll take three missionary journeys. He's moving all about, then he'll be in prison for a while, but nevertheless, so when Paul can't go in person, what Paul will do is he will send delegates. Paul has with him this entourage, this missionary band that is traveling with him. And so when Paul can't go, what he'll do is he'll send young men like Timothy or like Titus or Epaphroditus or other men, John, uh, John Mark or Luke, other men that are with him. He'll send them to the church in order to correct the teaching in order to reprove the church. And then when Paul can't visit in person, he can't send someone, then Paul's third line of defense is Paul will write a letter and praise the Lord for that third line of defense because it's through that, the writing of the letters that Paul is writing holy scripture that we now have in our Bibles and hold in our hands and have like, who would have thunk this? But, you know, on our, we have it on our, on our phones, you know? It's almost like we've reversed in technology. There was a time whenever the Bible was written on scrolls, and now here we are with you scrolling through it again, right? You're scrolling through the Bible in the same way. But nevertheless, we have it there for that. Paul is writing letters in the epistles. We've covered this, but we'll say it again. He's writing letters to the churches and to the pastors in order that they may know what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. And that's what's occurring in the book of Galatians. In fact, the book of Galatians, this letter, this epistle is the probably the first letter that Paul writes that we have preserved for us in Holy Scripture. Not only is it his first, if you're ever on Jeopardy or if there is Jeopardy again, but if, you know, if you're ever on Jeopardy and they ask the question, what is Paul's first letter? You can say Galatians. And then he said, what's Paul's strongest letter? It too is the book of Galatians. That Paul's tone in this letter, if you read it and understand it, and tone matters as you're reading it, his tone would be this. It's, it's anger, but it's not sinful anger. But there's an anger there. There's a frustration there. There's a concern. And here's what he's angry at. He's angry at the legalists who have come in and they're trying to add to the gospel message. He's angry with them. They're trying to add to the finished work of Christ, but he's also frustrated with the weak believers who are believing the lie that is being spread through these legalists. 
He's angry and frustrated. That's kind of his understanding. We see Paul, if you'll look with me, we'll start in the first verse. We'll break down the text a little bit. Paul begins with a a usual salutation. He he identifies himself as the author, and then he identifies the recipients who he's writing to. And notice this plural, the churches of Galatia. So it's not just a single church like it would be in Corinth, but here he's writing to a, a series of churches. And so we also understand that these false teachers have infiltrated not just a single church, but, uh, but culturally, they've moved in. There's a very short greeting, and, but even notice in that, he's defining the gospel. Even in his greeting, he's starting off the very few first words that he's writing. He's like, I want you to clearly understand what is the gospel. There was a sound effect that would accompany, accompany uh, verses uh, three through five. It would be the sound check, uh, probably the, the sound effect of a, of a shotgun being racked. That's kind of what the sound is starting off here. When he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, this Jesus who has given himself, he gave himself for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father to whom be all glory forever and ever, amen. And we receive grace and peace through Jesus. That's the truth. He's pointing to, notice, notice who the hero is there. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who has given himself for our sins. Jesus is the one who brings peace and brings grace. Jesus is the one who delivers us from a present evil age. And we could say that even about today, that every age is always evil. Some people look at what's happening around us right now. They go, oh my gosh, what an evil age. And there's nothing separate, nothing different has happened from Genesis chapter two all the way to where we live today, however many thousands of years ago to right now today, that truth is ever since the fall that we're living every generation and every age and every context, we are living in a present evil age. But Jesus is the one who comes by his finished work on the cross in order to deliver us from this. This was the Father's plan. All glory belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. And like I said, that's the racking of the shotgun. What comes next is the blast. No real warning shots are fired. I mean, in other Paul's other letters, he would include a word of thanksgiving or maybe some commendation to the people. There's no commendation here, just correction. He goes straight after it and Paul, because Paul's angry. He's angry because you do not tamper, do not distort. You should not add to the gospel because eternity is at stake. The souls of men and women are at stake. And that's what we see here in his correction. Verse number six, I am astonished. I'm amazed. Stand beside myself in this that you are so quickly, now notice what he says here, deserting him. See, the message of the gospel is not just a theology, but it ultimately leads us to a person. Notice Paul saying, hey, you're not deserting a theology here. You're not deserting my preaching and my teaching here, but you're deserting a person. The person is Jesus, that Jesus is the very backbone. He's the foundation of the gospel. So he's not saying, hey, you're leaving a theology or an ideology, but you're leaving a person here. You're deserting Jesus, that ultimately the gospel is all about Christ. It's not about you, it's not about sinners, but it's about Jesus and what Jesus has done. It's not about works, but it's about Jesus and his grace. And then he says in verse number seven, not that there really is another one. So you're abandoning, you're turning to a different gospel, but he said, not that there really is another one, but there's some who've come in and they're troubling you. 
And they want to distort the gospel of Jesus. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. But he said, but even if we, Paul saying, even if I could believe a different gospel, preach another gospel than the one I originally gave to you, then let me fall into the same category that I'm going to pronounce upon these legalists, even if I or an angel. Now, what he's saying here is titles don't matter. Uh, angel here means messenger from God. That's what an angel was, a messenger. Even if, some, even if it's me or if it's some other person who claims to be a messenger from God, and yet he's preaching a message to you that is different than, that is a distortion or an addition to the message that we preach to you. Now notice what he says, let him be accursed. That is some of the strongest language you can use in the entire Bible or that is used in the entire Bible is what he's saying here when he says, let him be accursed. Paul is pronouncing a divine curse, divine judgment upon the heretics, the legalists, the Judaizers as the specific group, but those who would preach a gospel different than the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. What do you mean by this divine curse? We have a great illustration of that in Jesus's life that Jesus will go into, at one point he'll go into Jerusalem. Jesus will see a fig tree off in the way and Jesus will kind of be to his disciples. Hey, let's go over to this fig tree and let's get us some figs off of it. Jesus will go to the fig tree, but here's the problem. The fig tree will be barren. It's a fig tree, but it's not producing any fruit. And so what Jesus will do is Jesus will curse that fig tree. It's like the next day the disciples walk by the same fig tree and it's all withered up and it's beginning to, I mean, it's dying. And what Jesus is saying in that, that's a symbol. That's a, that's a message that he's saying. The fig tree all throughout the Old Testament is a symbol of Israel. And what he's saying is, Israel, you are fruitless and you are useless and I pronounced a curse upon you. And then it withers up and dies. And what Paul is doing here is the same thing. He is pronouncing a divine curse upon anyone, any group, any theology, any pastor, any teacher, any college professor, any person who would add or distort or change the very gospel message. Verse number nine, as we have said before, so now I say again, he says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, and he says it again, let him be accursed. It's like Stanley from the office, did I stutter? You know, don't make me say it again. Did I stutter? When I said to you, let him be accursed, it's a picture of a double cursed. It's the word anathema. It means to be separated from Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. If anyone preaches a gospel different than the one true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, let him be separated from Jesus Christ. My grandfather used to say, he would love to use the illustration. He would say, did you know that the FBI, they never study counterfeit money because always new counterfeits are being produced all the time. And so they never go into great detail studying counterfeits, but what they study is they study the real thing. They study those dollar bills with such, you know, with, with such precision in how they study that immediately they'll be able to, to identify any counterfeit that's on the outside of that. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, he didn't know if that's true or not. He wasn't an FBI agent. He didn't know any FBI agents, but it's a great preacher illustration for us to say that that's our primary job. Our primary job is that we may know the gospel. In fact, every believer, every believer must rightly know and believe 
and be convinced of the true one and only gospel. Now I've been using the word gospel. I probably have said it, I don't know, 50 times already in this short, already short introduction to this sermon. But I wanna pause for just a moment. I'm gonna ask you to pause for just a moment. Don't, just, just take us, and let me ask you this one question that may be the most important question that any person could ever ask you. What is the gospel? I want you to answer it in your mind for just a second. I'll pause and give you a second to think about it, but what is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I'll put a pause on that. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he wrote a commentary to the book of Galatians. He loved the book of Galatians. It was his favorite book. In fact, he called it his wife. He's like, I'm betrothed to the book of Galatians. That's how much he loved it. And Martin Luther, I think it's in the very beginning of his commentary on the book of Galatians. He says this, that the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Reminds us of what Paul said to the church in Corinth. I came to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. That's the foundation of the gospel. Most necessary that we know this article well, that we teach it to others, and then I love this, and we beat it into their heads continually. That's, that's a good preacher language there. Metaphorical, of course, but nevertheless, that's our job is to beat the gospel into our heads continually. What is the gospel? Simply put, the gospel is this. The gospel is the good news to sinners of the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. The good news is that Jesus has saved sinners and that Jesus saves sinners. Sinners like me and sinners like you, he saves us. He saves us through the perfect life that he lived, the substitutionary death that he died, the bodily resurrection, his ascension on high. That's how Jesus saves sinners, but it is the work of Christ. That when Martin Luther and the other reformers, when they were, when they were wrestling the, the, the gospel from the clutches of Roman Catholicism that had so distorted and abused the message of the gospel, as they were wrestling that from them, the reformers kind of came up with this as a definition. And we'll see glimpses of Galatians chapter one, verses three through five in this as well. He, we could say it like this. The gospel is the good news of salvation for sinners by grace alone, through faith alone. It's Ephesians chapter two. In Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And so we use that word in there, alone, well, they would have used the word solas. Those are the five solas of the, of the reformational movement. They're kind of the backbone, the foundation of the reformational movement that kind of set Protestant, uh, Protestantism. They're protesting against the Roman Catholics and it set Protestantism apart from uh, Roman Catholicism in that. And what the sola just means in Latin, it means alone. 
Salvation is by grace alone. It is God's initiating love and favor. That's the foundation of salvation. It's through our faith alone, as opposed to any work of mankind in order to win or to earn our salvation or God's favor or righteousness or anything else in him. It is in Christ alone. As I've said already, it's about Jesus and Jesus alone. There are no co-redeemers. The only thing that you have brought to your salvation is you brought the sin that made Jesus's death necessary. That's what you bring. According to the scriptures alone, that the Bible and the Bible alone is sufficient. The preaching of the Bible alone is sufficient for us to know the gospel, to believe the gospel, to be saved by the gospel. And all of it is to God's glory alone. It is all from him and for him And the gospel must be correctly proclaimed to others and it must be fully believed upon by ourselves. You never graduate beyond the gospel. And in the same way that I said that the gospel isn't just a theology and an ideology, it is a person in the same way hundreds, maybe even thousands of your and my real life problems find their remedy, they find the resolution in the gospel. That the gospel and correct gospel uh, doctrine, it doesn't just fix your theology, it fixes your life. That it is through the belief of the gospel that we receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes to abide and to live in us and the Holy Spirit produces fruit in your life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, right? Self-control, faithfulness, faithfulness, all those things in that. And when you're living a life contrary to those things, my worry is a gospel issue. My anxiety that I feel is really ultimately, it's a gospel issue for me that my fear that I may feel is a gospel issue. My impatience that I may have with my wife, it's not my wife's problem, it's my problem. And ultimately, its remedy is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. My inability to forgive others is a gospel issue. My, my, the conflict that I may feel in a relationship, ultimately, it is a gospel issue. Now, I understand it that if everything is something, then nothing is that thing, right? If everything is a gospel issue, then you'd be like, well, then nothing is a gospel issue. But listen, what I'm finding out, the older I get and the more I begin to study and and come to the gospel, I'm finding out that almost every negative emotion and negative issue in my life that I'm experiencing is a gospel issue. Shows up in my relationship with my wife. Me leaving my clothes out on the floor beside our bed That is a gospel issue. It is a gospel issue. It really is like at first I'd be like, no, it's just me and I'm a slob. But ultimately, no, it really is an inability to really believe the gospel because the Bible tells me as a husband that I'm to love my wife as he loves the church. And whenever I leave my clothes out on the floor, what I'm declaring to my wife is you're not my wife, you're my maid. The expectation that I'm laying out is for her to pick up those clothes because she's done it in the past. I put them there and they just disappeared. For the first years, few years of our marriage, I thought it was just the, the dirty clothes fairy that came and took the dirty clothes away. But then I later found out, no, it was my wife. I thought there was a period that we had a maid and she's like, no, that's me. I'm the one doing that. And when you leave them there, 
you, you make me feel like you're made, not your wife. And I think about how Jesus loves his church and Jesus never makes us feel like his servants, even though we are. He never feels like, makes us feel like we are his maids or his butlers, but he always confers value on us and identity on us and lifts us up. And so even those issues are gospel issues. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop leaving my clothes on the floor because the gospel also speaks a better message of sanctification. And that's the issue of sanctification. I'm growing in it. But everything, so much in our lives that is negative, so much in our lives that we struggle with, is our inability to rightly believe the gospel. When we shrink back in relationships, when we withdraw, when we're apathetic towards people, ultimately it's an issue of the gospel. We feel like we need to prove ourselves. It's an issue of the gospel. Sometimes I think about this, that the gospel is like, a, it's like some people would say, like it's a path, it's a road, but I think even maybe a better picture. And I, I saw it recently on Facebook, someone sharing a, a, a video and uh, a member of our church, I know that have recently, has recently shared this video. Uh, John Cameron uh, shared it, but it's a picture of a guy who's, who's doing this rock climbing thing. I mean, he's climbed all the way up across, I don't even know what you would call it, like a, like a rocky crag. It's like a, it's like a chain of rocks and they look to be like this wide. The guy's got like a GoPro on his head as he's walking across and it's like, you know, stiff cliff, all, I mean, a uh, steep cliff down this way and steep cliff down that way that he may fall off. And he's just kind of traversing on that. And everybody's like, oh no, never, right? Yeah, and that's what I say as well. Oh no, never, as he goes across. I mean, the thought of it, seeing it causes me anxiety. That's not a gospel issue, anxiety. That's what God would put in me. No human being is supposed to be up there, right? You're supposed to be on the ground, looking up at it, not up there, walking across it. But in some ways, that is the way that the gospel works, that there are two cliffs. There are two ditches on either side where we may fall to our death. Broadly, we would categorize these two ditches as one as legalism. What legalism is, is where we try to earn favor with God through our works. Now, we usually think about legalism. Let me give you the second one for those of you who may be taking notes. The first one's legalism. The second one will be, we'll call it lawlessness. It's rebellion. The Bible refers to it in, I think, in the King James Version as licentiousness. So legalism, mostly religious works, and lawlessness, which is mostly rebellion, living however the heck we want to live. Now, a lot of times we think about legalism as a, an addition to the gospel message, but it's really a subtraction. Both of them are a subtraction from the full message of the gospel in legalism, which you're, what you're subtracting out of it is you're subtracting grace out of it because now you're living for entitlement. It's no longer grace that has been given, something that I do not merit, I do not, I do not earn, but it's now something that I have earned. I've earned this through either my moralism or through my religious performance or some way I've done it. It's also subtracting faith. No longer are you believing and receiving something, but now you're earning something like, a, like an employee earns its paycheck rather as, a, as, a, as an adopted child, you know, just simply receives love and receives a gift. No, now it's something that I've, I've earned and I'm making and it's mine and I, I'm owed it. It's a subtraction from Jesus as well because you see yourself as a co-redeemer. You're helping to save yourself. Your salvation is somehow equal parts you and Jesus You're adding to the work of Christ with your own works. And that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Galatians. As you read Galatians, that's what's happening. There's a group that have come in. They're called the Judaizers. 
and they're legalists and they've spied out, as Paul says, they spied on the freedom that the Christians have. They've gone back and they've reported to the church at Jerusalem. Then they come back in a a big group so that they can go and they can infiltrate and they can spread out this false teaching among the people. And what they're saying to them specifically is, yes, you can believe in Jesus by faith, but not only do you need to do that, but you need to add the works of the Old Testament law. There's certain religious works that you need to do, namely the ceremonial work of, uh, and not just, and the physical work of circumcision. Yes, Jesus is your savior and you need to believe in him for salvation. But in order to receive his salvation, you have to do these certain works. Men get circumcised literally, physically. And then you need to adhere to the Mosaic Sabbaths and the ceremonies and the laws and the rituals and the standard. Their message is a message of salvation by Christ, but it's not Christ alone. It's Christ activated by works. And the reality is grace says you don't have to qualify in order to be a recipient. Let me say that again. What grace says, there's no, there's no qualification necessary for you to be a recipient of God's grace that Jesus doesn't need our help. He is an adequate and a strong savior in and of himself. And the gospel is a proclamation of the finished work of Jesus, it is not a help wanted ad. That as Jesus dies on the cross, one of Jesus's last words that he cries out to the father is, it is, fill in the blank, what is it? Finished. That Christ has accomplished it. Christ has accomplished salvation. Christ has accomplished atonement. And what religion oftentimes does, what legalism often does is it's kind of like the picture of, of, of the runners running and they get to the wall. You know, like some of you that were in the army, you'll remember these days. You know, when you run and you get to the, the wall and you got to climb over the wall and you start climbing and climbing and climbing and then your, your buddy comes in from behind and pushes you up and over and you make it all the way over. And some people believe that is the gospel, that our morality and our works and, and, and our religion, the things that we've done, our baptism, and our church membership, but most of all for this culture, it's our morality, that our morality is the way that we start up the wall and we almost make it over, but then Jesus comes in behind it, just gives us that little nudge that we needed in order to make it over the wall, but that is not the gospel. What the gospel says is you couldn't climb a wall. You know why? Because you were dead at the base of that wall and Jesus showed up and grabbed you up and threw you, you're dead tail over his shoulder and climbed over the wall, all the way up the wall and over the wall, packing your stuff behind him, you know, and with him. That's the message of the gospel. What it does is it leads us to revel in Jesus and Jesus alone. We sing, oh, what a savior who has saved a wretch like me. It leads us to leave behind our old dead works and works of the law and our own dead moralism. And what is moralism anyway? In fact, if I could identify the, and I have, I've been talking about it recently because I think cult, in our culture, Christianity gets confused by legalism and by morality. That's where it gets, that's where we have to fight for it. That's where we need to wrestle it out of the, out of the clutches and out of the grips. It's rampant in our culture. It says that you can attain salvation through most, mostly good works. I mean, that's the reality it's the reality is that moralism really never gets at the root of the issue. It never, uh, it never comes after real sin. Sin is always at a superficial level. 
It never gets at real sin and real issues of the heart, like lust and anger and envy and greed. In our culture, the brand of moralism is, says this, just be a good person. And what they mean by that is try not to murder anyone. Right? That's, what, that's what it's getting at. Try not to murder from anyone and try not to steal. Well, you can fudge on your taxes and on your time card, but outside of that, everybody does that. Try not to steal anything, right? Try to be nice to your neighbor. If his leaves need to be raked, go over and rake them because it's a good thing to do. If you see an old lady, help her across the street, just live a moral life. And then when you get to heaven, hopefully you've done enough and Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. Hopefully your good works will outweigh your bad works, but that is not the message of the gospel. Ultimately, that takes Jesus out because you're really not even that bad of a sinner. But the reality is, as we are, we need to be saved from Jesus. We need to be saved Jesus for all of the bad things that we've done. We need to be saved from Jesus. We need to be saved. Jesus needs to save us as well from all of the religious works that we've done with bad intentions all of the good works that we've tried to do so that we could say, hey, look at me. Not only do we, can we talk about legalism, but we can talk about lawlessness. We can talk about licentiousness. And what that is, is where we assume favor from God. We assume it. We make grace bigger. I don't want to say bigger than it ought. I don't even know how. We have this inflated and distorted view of God's grace with a little bitty Jesus, a Jesus who has no real power to change you feel like we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But then what you think is you can just live however you want to live. You're living in a subtraction, a minus of the, of the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is a message, it's power. The word he uses there for power is dynamite, it's dunamis, it's dynamite power for salvation for everyone who would believe it, is what Paul's saying. It has power in it, and the power comes in our lives as it changes us, as the Spirit is at work, and the Spirit regenerates us. What they want to do is they want to subtract lawlessness people, licentious people, liberal people. They want to subtract regeneration from the gospel, evidence in our salvation, the evidence of our salvation is a changed life. Even Luther himself, he says that we are saved by grace alone. I mean, we're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saved is, saves is never alone. It's through the belief in the gospel, we receive the Spirit, and the Spirit makes us new. Being resurrected from the dead is a transformational event that occurs in our lives, is it not? I mean, could you imagine could you imagine dying and knowing that you were dead and they put the paddles on and come back to life? Could you imagine what a transformation that would be in your life? And that is what Christ has done. He has saved us and brought us back to life. It's an ongoing process that begins with the belief in the gospel and it's to change. It's the, it's the message of change. And as I said, legalism, lawlessness, it shows up time and time again throughout the church history. The reality is, I say this often, Satan has a very thin playbook and he's always just reinventing, I think mostly those two issues, an issue of legalism and the issue of licentiousness. He's reinventing them and trying to rebrand them and trying to popularize them and sell them to believing Christians. Moralism we've talked about, but let's talk about licentiousness in our culture. 
We see it in different ways. We see it through what was called the social gospel, very popular in the 1960s and 1970s, even into the 1980s and maybe even in today. It is salvation through good works, good works to the poor. I think maybe the issue that's at stake today that's coming up that you and I, we have to deal with and we'll deal with it even more in the future is a new branding of the social gospel called the social justice movement. For those of you that are unaware of that, what the social justice movement is, is that it distorts the idea of justice. It distorts the true notion and the biblical idea of justice. What it says is it rebrands justice as something else. And then it says, who's against justice? Surely everyone's for justice. And again, it in the same way, it diminishes sin. It, it, it has a small and short view of sin. It elevates one sin, the sin of racism, above all other sins. It calls for a reform, which isn't all bad. Certainly, we need to talk about racism. Certain, certainly, the sin of partiality lies in many people's hearts. But what this does is this particular message, what it says is there is no salvation. There is no true freedom from racism. Jesus can't deliver. He can't save. Yes, he can change the leopard spot. Yes, he can save true sinners, but the racist, there is no hope for you. And ultimately, even if there would be hope, it doesn't come through Jesus, but hope for change, it comes through activism and virtue signaling. And it's actually a hopeless message for most of us. It's a hopeless message saying that we can never be healed. We can never be truly transformed from our past. It divides rather than unifies. It divides churches divides up churches into groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. It divides up churches into groups. There are the racists who are woke, which is their version of being born again and regenerate. And then there are just the racist. And then there are the oppressed. And ultimately it undermines the gospel. The gospel knows nothing of those divisions. The gospel knows two divisions. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there are those who are trusting and believing in Jesus for their salvation. And the social justice movement, what it does is it builds a bridge as if between, um, between legalism and between licentiousness, because it's also very open. It's open in, um, in liberal theology. I'm not talking about politics here. When I talk about, I'm not talking about Democrats. I'm talking about a liberal theology, a theology that says you can live however you want to live, a theology that diminishes what sin is. And the reality is as Christendom dies out in America, we, and as we as a nation, as we are growing increasingly secular, and that's just the truth that we are, more and more churches will give over to lawlessness and licentiousness. There'll be more and more churches that, we, that will fall into the trap of a liberal theology, many more churches that will come that will minimal, minimalize and even endorse sin. And that's what lawlessness says. Lawlessness says, believe what you want to believe and live however you want to live. And that's opposite of the gospel. The gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Jesus is saving us, even as we see here from this present evil age. That's an ongoing work that begins with your belief in Christ. He's constantly calling you out of the world and changing you and transforming you that you may be conformed to the image of his son and purity. People in those groups, they know nothing of holiness. They know nothing of holy unto the Lord. They know nothing of those things. Liberal churches, they champion sin. They tell people it's okay, that they can take pride in their sin. 
and let that rest on us for just a moment. Paul writes in the, in the book of Romans, he, strong word, ch- first chapter of the book of Romans, and he gives all of these warnings. And at the end of it, it's a warning to people that not only participate in sinful acts, but you give approval to people who are acting sinfully. And we need to be aware of that, church. We need to be aware of that as we read Facebook messages and when we put likes, we're giving it the thumbs up. We need to make sure that we're not giving approval to people living sinful lifestyles. Again, I don't want us to vacillate and get over here into legalism and now, okay, I saw you, you went to this movie. And I remember years ago, I went to a pastor's conference and we were staying in this hotel and we didn't rent a car and we had to walk. And the, like the only restaurant that was close to us, we were in Jacksonville, Florida. And the only restaurant that was close to us was Ruby Tuesdays, right? Pretty generic, right? Ruby Tuesdays. We went to Ruby Tuesdays. And I think, honestly, that was the, that was the weekend I fell in love with chicken wings. Like that was the weekend where they had these chicken wings. And it was like, first time I was like, I'm gonna try these buffalo wings. And I was like, oh my gosh. My mama never fixed anything for me like that. I mean, I literally was like 22 at this time of my life. And I fell in love with chicken wings and uh, they had this, this dessert called a, a, a strawberry tall cake. And then like night three, we went to this pastor's conference and the pastor stood in the pulpit and he just said something to the effect of like, I'd never go into a Ruby Tuesdays. They serve beer, you know? But it's like, you looked at this guy and you go, well, you didn't have a problem going to Cracker Barrel, you know, cause you big old boy. But that's legalism. It's legalism. That's not what we're all about either. That's not what we're about. There are clear, the Bible is clear what's sinful and what's not sinful. And in the things that are sinful, you and I as Christians, we're, we're told to abstain from those things, to kill our flesh from those things, to be purified from those things, to come out from among those who, who, who live in a, in a sinful world. We're, we're to leave those sinful things behind us, right? And to be changed. And we also need to be careful that we're not giving approval to the people who do that. The issue in Galatia was so severe. It was so severe that the Judaizers had such an influence that even the apostle Peter comes into Galatia and the apostle Peter begins to act hypocritically in order to stay into favor with the Judaizers. He doesn't care. When he's with the, when he's with the Gentiles, he's eating and drinking what they're eating and drinking. But when he's with the Jews, he's saying, you know what? They shouldn't do those kinds of things. And the apostle Paul says, I think this is in the second chapter of Galatians. The apostle Paul says, I went to Peter and I confronted him and I opposed him to his face in that. Because what he was teaching and preaching wasn't in step with the gospel. And that's what you and I are told to do. You and I, we must live in step with the gospel. What you believe must live in step with the gospel. And so let me ask you this. Do you know how to confront the little legalist that lives in you? Do you know how to oppose that little legalist that speaks a message of self-righteousness or self-condemnation to you? Do you know how to oppose him? See, remember I said that many of our issues, our lack of love and our fear, anxiety, all of these things, the emotions that you and I, that we oftentimes we wrestle with, we struggle with, and we feel they're coming because of like for us who are legalists, that little legalist that preaches a message of, of either self-righteousness. You know how some of you, you know how, you know how it is. You get up in the morning and you read your Bible and you pray, you do your devotion, check that off your list, right? You, you, you go to Walmart or McDonald's and the person deserves 
a piece of your mind, but you restrain that. And then what do you do? You got a little swagger in your walk, don't you? That's me. You got a little strut to your step. And what that is, that's a little legalist preaching self-righteousness to you. Or in the days when you fail to read your Bible or the weeks that you fail to read your Bible, then that little legalist preaches a word of self-condemnation to you. Do you know how to confront the little rebel in you that preaches apathy? Why even care anymore? Just go and do it. Just whatever that sinful thing that seems like it's going to provide so much pleasure, just go and do it. And then when you do it, he preaches self-condemnation again to you. He preaches self-loathing to you when you fall into that sin. Do you know how to, do you know how to deal with him? how to confront him, you do it with the message of Jesus. You do it with the gospel. That's why Luther said it's the principal article. We got to beat it into our heads and we got to confront the little legalist and the little rebel in ourselves constantly, absolutely constantly. My dad, who's here in the room, um, even uh, this morning, my dad had, uh, has been having a, a little bit of some heart issues and so my dad got on Amazon and my dad bought for himself his own um, EKG machine. So, you know, I know that some of you use probes and all this, but his is super fancy. It connects to his phone and it's just a little bar and he puts his thumbprints on it and then it measures it. It does like the whole deal. Shows him what his heart, what his heart is doing. It, it, it diagnoses and shows, not, it doesn't diagnose and say, hey, but it shows kind of the, the heart. And listen, the way that you live is like EKG machine. There's nothing that an EKG machine is going to do to fix his heart. It's not going to correct his heart. It can't do that. All it can properly do is kind of is show him, give him a picture, a, a diagnosis, and show him of what his heart is doing. That ultimately for his heart to be fixed, he has to go to a physician. The way that you're living your life, your emotions that you feel, even in 2020, those are just all indicators. They're, they're a diagnosis machine. They're just showing you what's really going on in your heart. And to fix those things, you got to go to the person. And that person is Jesus. Jesus with all of his love. Jesus with all of his grace. Jesus with his better word. Jesus with his word, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and you're going to find in me rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel that silences lawlessness and silences legalism. And it's what needed most in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you speak a better word for our lives. A better word, a better preachment than we oftentimes can preach for ourselves is found in you. You preach forgiveness of our sins. You lay your light and easy burden upon us. And Lord, I just pray for freedom of our hearts and freedom of our minds, even today. Lord, I, think, I pray that we would think about all the places where we're, not, where we're not acting in accords with love, not acting in accords with peace, all the places in our hearts and in our lives where there's strife and where there's impatience, where there's fear, where there's anger, where there's frustration. May we believe this better word. May it bring just healing to our hearts and to our souls, 
to our lives and to our relationships. May we, may we not be like the apostle Peter was here. May we live in lives that are in step with the gospel. All glory to you. Even as we sing this song, all glory to you as we think of you, Jesus, calling unfaithful ones like us, coming to unfaithful ones like us. Praise your name. In your name we pray. Amen.